Our Bible reading today is from Mark chapter 5, um, verses 1 to 20. You can find this in the Red Bibles on page 1,562. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons off his feet. on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from the distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And Jesus was getting into the, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Thanks, Christine, uh, and good morning, uh, and welcome everyone. It's great to see you all here. My name is Jack, uh, and we're going to be jumping into that story from Mark 5 for the next little while. Well, in December 1916, a tall, dishevelled man walked towards his death. His wild, unkempt hair flicked around his head, his piercing eyes that had hypnotised thousands struggled to see through the midnight darkness. He was a mystic, a spiritualist, the mad monk to his enemies, and he had plenty of enemies. Uh, his name was Grigory Rasputin, the confident and closest ally to the Tsar and Tsarina of all Russia, 
and he was about to be assassinated by Prince Yusupov. Now, for those of you who studied the Russian Revolution uh, in Year 11 history, uh, you'll remember probably how this story goes, because his death is like something out of a horror film. Yusupov has laced the cakes with cyanide, and as Rasputin eats them, nothing happens. He then offers him wine, which has also been poisoned, but nothing seems to impact this man. In desperation, Yusupov pulls out a revolver and shoots him four times in quick succession, and yet still Rasputin would not die. In his memoir, Yusupov recalls at this moment, this devil who was dying of poison, who had a bullet in his heart, must have been raised from the dead by the powers of evil. There was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. They then beat him with a dumbbell, dumped him in the river, and the story goes that when the bodies discovered, he still had air in his lungs, which meant he must have been drowned. Well, there's always been something very Halloween about this story. Uh, he got a murder at midnight, a larger-than-life charismatic mystic, and just this edge of the demonic, the supernatural, that leaves you feeling a little bit unsettled. There's an intrigue with this story that really sucks you in. Uh, and it's the same with horror movies, with ghost stories, and even a little bit with Halloween. Uh, and there's a reason that this genre, I think, is popular, particularly in the secular West. Because most of our lives, our lives are run with sort of scientific and rational precision. Everything has a material explanation. And yet, we're sort of haunted by the feeling that maybe this isn't quite everything. And when you get an event like this, a story like this, when things don't quite add up, it draws us in. And this tension between our sort of materialistic scientific minds and the supernatural is what we're going to be exploring this morning. Canadian sociologist Charles Taylor uh, is the expert on secularism. He's the guy who wrote the tome on it that everybody else references. And he describes the secular West as having what he calls an imminent frame. That is, we see the world in a particular way. It's as though we've taken a picture frame and we've placed it over reality, and all that we see is the material world, the imminent. And everything in that frame can be understood without reference to anything else. Everything has a material explanation. That's our default. That's how we live life. Uh, John Lennon, in his song Imagine, essentially describes the imminent frame in his opening lines. If you know the song... Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. All that exists is this imminent frame, the material world. But interestingly, Taylor says that this doesn't mean that the transcendent or the supernatural doesn't exist. In fact, he describes our imminent frame as being haunted by the supernatural. And every so often, it finds a way in. We have an experience that we can't quite explain. We have a sense that there must be something more to this world, that there must be meaning and purpose out there. 
as we face the anxieties and the pressures of having to forge our own destinies, we wonder, is someone actually in control of this reality? Or perhaps this morning, you're not from a secular Western worldview at all. And for you, demons, jinns, fairies, they literally keep you up at night as you're far more sensitive to the spiritual than the so-called enlightened West. And so, Halloween, the most supernatural of all our holidays, is a great time to explore these questions. Uh, And this morning, that's what we're going to do by engaging with the story that Christine read out earlier from Mark's Gospel. Uh, This is an ancient document. It's about 2,000 years old. And as we explore this story... We're hoping that it'll challenge and help you move forward with these questions wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. And so, have your Bibles open there to Mark 5. Uh, There's an outline uh, in the handout uh, in the leaflet to help you follow along as well. So let's jump uh, into this story from Mark 5. Uh, And the story, particularly the setup, could be a horror film. You can imagine a screenwriter pitching the idea to Netflix We've got our protagonist, Jesus, with his disciples, and they're sort of floating across this mist-filled lake. Jesus is drifting away from the safety of home towards the region of the Gerasenes. And as the boat drifts toward the shoreline, it is a sound that first rests our attention. The tortured, unnatural scream of a single man carries across the still waters. And as the screams grow louder, we begin to see the shadowy outlines of tombstones emerge. We're heading towards graveyard. And as Jesus gets out of the boat, the possessed man steps forward and he's everything you'd have imagined. Read with me from verse 3 in Mark 5. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons from his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. It's a compelling opening, isn't it? But of course, this is not a horror film. This is not a film that's meant to titillate an audience and give them a buzz. This is serious. What we see here is a tragedy. Here is a person who has been wrecked by demonic possession. It should evoke our concern and our compassion. And yet, we can run into a problem when we read this from a secular Western perspective, when we have our imminent frame up, can't we? Because it's very easy to read this story and simply reduce this story down to a material explanation. That is, to simply view this through the psychological lens. And clearly, when we read this story, there is psychological turmoil going on. And the Bible isn't disagreeing with that. But it doesn't let us reduce it down to simply the psychological. It's saying that there's something more going on here. There is a distinct spiritual and supernatural edge to what is going on. Verse 2 tells us this this man has an impure spirit. The strength of the man, that he can break the iron chains, is clearly supernatural. And it raises an important question for us. We're living in a society at the moment that is currently facing a significant mental health crisis. 
across the board. Part of this is an increased awareness of mental health that has been important and good. But as we seek to grapple with it as a culture, could it be that simply reducing it to the psychological is actually limiting our ability to respond to it? Is there a spiritual edge that has gone unexplored that we need to understand if we can begin to turn the tide? Is the imminent frame that we've put up actually reducing our capacity to cope with it? Well, if the Bible rejects this imminent frame, what picture of the world does it suggest for us? And to understand what happens in this story, we need to place ourselves in the shoes of a first century ancient Near Eastern person and to understand the worldview of their time. Because if the secular West understands the world with this imminent frame up, then the clue is in John Lennon's imagine and in what he rejects. He rejects both heaven above and hell below us, but that is precisely what the Bible suggests is in fact going on. Uh, In your outline, you'll have a little diagram there uh, of uh, the cosmology, the worldview uh, of an ancient Near Eastern person, uh, the triple-decker universe. Uh, We've got at the top there, the top layer is heaven. Heaven is where God dwells. God dwells in heavens with his angels and he rules there. Uh, If you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, this idea is right there in the beginning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or, as the Nyunga people in Western Australia have put it in their translation, your word will come here and be boss on our ground as you do in your holy and sacred home. It's a beautiful way of putting it. In fact, there's a huge amount we can learn from the indigenous church when it comes to spirituality, isn't there? But the second layer then is the earth. This is the material world that we inhabit. The first human being, Adam, his name literally means from the dust, or dust man, perhaps earthling. That is, humans were created for the earth. It is our home. We're not fallen angels. The earth was not a mistake. We're not trying to escape it. Earth is a place for humans to exist, to flourish. It's our home. But then the third layer is the underworld. It is literally the place of the dead. Hell, Hades, Sheol, these are all ways that describe this place. And it is a place for demons. It is a place where the dead go. And so if you keep that in your mind, this triple-decker universe, the story can move to a deeper level. Because what's happening in this story? Jesus is moving towards a graveyard a place of the dead, in a sense, a portal between the earth and the underworld. And as the man approaches Jesus, we realise that something has gone wrong in the cosmic structures of this world. Because the man is possessed by a demon. And the demon is not where it should be. The demon belongs to the underworld, but somehow it has escaped the underworld and is now causing havoc on earth. The world in this picture is disordered. It's scrambled, and the consequences are huge. Not just for the man, but think about the impact of this on his family, his children, if he had any, the community that he lives in. 
This must have absolutely torn the community apart. But then, as Jesus approaches, something else happens. Read with me from verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. And so as we apply again this triple-decker universe, we see something else. The man, the earthling, is at the mercy of the demon. But the moment that Jesus arrives, everything changes. Because Jesus is also not where he should be. Because Jesus is not an earthling, he is from heaven. And the demon recognises immediately who he is. Look at the demon's response in verse 7. He shouts at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That's who the demon identifies Jesus as. And the demon's theology is spot on. He knows exactly what's going on. And the narrative records that the demon, through his avatar, falls on his knees and begs. Because what else can you do in the face of overwhelming power? All you have left is to beg. And so we have all three of these layers at play, don't we? The demon has broken loose of the underworld and he's causing havoc on the earth. The humans on earth are powerless and helpless to deal with the problem. And it would have been death and destruction if it wasn't for heavenly intervention. Jesus, son of the most high God, comes from heaven. Verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. What is the area that they are begging to stay in? Well, they want to stay on earth. They don't want to be banished to the underworld. They want to be causing havoc and distress. And they ask to be sent into the pigs, but they don't realise that it is the pigs who will facilitate their banishment. Verse 12. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, I um, don't know how you feel about this picture of the pigs. Uh, it's easy for us to read this story with our sort of latent capitalist glasses on, immediately get out our calculators and begin to calculate how much this would have cost them. 2,000 pigs is a lot of money running off the edge of the cliff. What's Jesus doing here? But it's interesting, actually, that in the story, there's nothing in the text that pushes you towards this concern. In fact, it doesn't really seem to be the primary concern of the pig herders themselves. I'll get onto that more in a moment. But similarly, you might have wondered about the poor pigs. They didn't choose for this to happen. Why do they have to die? Couldn't Jesus have chosen a different way? I think that's a very valid concern. But I'd say two things at this point. The first thing is that the picture that is being painted for us is of a disordered world. When sin runs wild, when demons run wild, there is pain and suffering. There is, in a sense, collateral damage, whether on the man in question or on the pigs. That's part and parcel of this story. 
But secondly, a consistent way that God interacts with evil is to take an evil act and turn it into good. And so Jesus takes the evil act of the demons wanting to go into the pigs and uses it to banish legion back into the underworld. Of course, this still leaves the poor pigs carrying the burden, and that's true. There is a sense in this story where the penalty of sin falls on the pigs. The pigs are, in a sense, the sacrifice. But the result of that sacrifice is the banishment of the demon. And this is what the triple-decker universe allows us to see. And this is what animates the story, because in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, these bodies of water were also portals back to the underworld. And so this is a picture of legion being rushed back into the underworld to where it belongs. Jesus comes from heaven, he conquers the demon on earth and banishes it back down into the underworld. And in doing so, he frees the oppressed man. He brings order to the disordered world. He unscrambles what has been scrambled and he brings peace to the chaos that was both in the man's heart and at the heart of this community. And we have this beautiful description of what peace looks like in verse 15. When they, the crowds, came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. It's a lovely picture, isn't it, of what that looks like. But we're not quite finished with the story yet, because we still need to contend with two reactions that ensue. And the first are the crowds, the people, and their reaction is one of terror. When the people see what has happened, they are terrified. Verse 17, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Why? What's going on here? Well, I don't think it's because of their livelihood that they've lost, and I don't think it's because of their concern for the pigs. It's because they recognise the power that Jesus holds, and they are terrified of it. Because who is this man? Who can tell a demon to leave and it leaves? Is he a demon himself? What does this mean? And as they see this power, they want to get as far away as possible. Because they understand that Jesus is not just a teacher. They understand that he's not just a guy with a morality that he wants to impose on others. They realize that he's not just a political leader who wants to enforce his view of the world on others. He's not just another self-help guru who wants you to believe in yourself. They could have dealt with any of these. They had the categories for these people. They just didn't have the categories for Jesus. Because Jesus was more than any of this. Here was a battle of cosmic and supernatural scope and importance. And they were right, in a sense, to be terrified. Because Jesus did have power that was far beyond anything they could understand. But what they failed to understand was how Jesus was using that power. Because this was a fight between heaven and hell for peace on earth. And this also was not the full fight. You see, this was just, in a sense, an opening salvo. This was 
a trailer of what was to come. Because this story in Mark is, in a sense, a little microcosm of the bigger story that is playing out across Mark's Gospel and across the Bible at large. To understand Jesus, to understand the claims of Christianity, you need to understand this cosmic scope. Because the story of Christianity is of a world that is disordered, scrambled, possessed by the devil. From the snake in the garden, where the devil moves from the underworld to earth and disrupts God's good creation. The world is under a curse. But in response, God sends his son Jesus. Jesus moves from heaven to earth and takes on human form in order to save it. But while in this story Jesus simply banishes the demon into the pigs, a few chapters later, as we reach the climax of Mark's gospel, he will take it one step further. He will not simply enter the graveyard, he will take the place of the pigs and be sacrificed himself. Jesus will enter death itself as he dies on the cross. He will literally descend to the dead and he will bind Satan and he will rescue the dead from the underworld. And then, Three days later, he will rise from the underworld back onto earth to the land of the living. And 40 days later, after that, he will ascend back into heaven where he sits victorious on his throne. And the message of Jesus, the message that he preaches, the message of Christianity is one of peace. There is peace. And not just peace for the man in this story, but peace for the whole world. And not just peace on a small scale, but peace on a cosmic scale, where all things have been put back to where they should be. Physical wars will have been stopped, the war and chaos in our own hearts stilled and calmed. Because if Jesus is on his throne, then there is no need to fear the supernatural. There is no need to fear the demonic, no need to fear jinns or fairies or whatever it is that haunts your dreams, and no need as well to fear the disorder and chaos in this world, because Jesus has defeated it, and when he returns, he will set all things in its place. The earth will be restored, and all who accept his rule and reign will live with him in this new creation, and this It's the beauty of the Christian message, the gospel. Victory has been won, and the result is eternal peace. Well, one of the comments uh, that always mystifies me most when people mock Christianity uh, is when they mock Christianity for believing in fairies. Christianity is like believing that there are fairies at the bottom of your garden or some sort of version on that. The reason it mystifies me is because actually it's Christianity that means you don't need to worry about the fairies at the bottom of your garden. Because whether they exist or not, Jesus has power over them. And they have no control or influence for those who are in Jesus. Uh, In fact, this single fact is one of the giant reverberations that the Jesus revolution in the first century has had across the world that we now don't need to worry about the river fairies or the demons that come at night. We don't need to appease the gods or offer them sacrifices anymore. Ironically, secularism can only exist 
on the foundation that Christianity has laid for it. Christianity gives confidence and assurance that the devil has been defeated. Secularism can only tell you to close your eyes and hope that the devil doesn't exist. But there's more than that. We talked earlier about the mental health crisis that we're facing as a society. Well, here is potentially how the spiritual dimension can help with that as well. You see, if we reduce everything to the material, then it means that you alone bear the weight of your own self-actualization. You need to decide who you are, what the purpose of your life is, You need to discover your own meaning. You need to work out your own sexuality and gender. You need to create the best you and to be the best and most authentic you that you can be. Now, that might sound like freedom, but what if it's not? What if that pressure is too much? What if that's not actually the way that it's supposed to be? Pete Orr and Rory Shiner uh, have written a book called The World Next Door, Uh, And they put it like this. They say, The triple-decker universe spoke to this. It put human life in a bigger frame. It included a more complex set of assumptions and options by which to make sense of human choice, of guilt and suffering, of meaning and home. Where modernity looks down over thick-rimmed reading glasses and says, well, maybe if you'd just tried harder the ancient transcendent view was more compassionate, expansive. It had room for us to understand ourselves simultaneously as victims and perpetrators, noble and base, free yet enslaved, responsible but in need of rescue. And perhaps this is what we need, a return to a more ancient way of thinking, to take off the imminent frame and to understand that the spiritual and the transcendent are in fact crucial to who we are. And perhaps this is what the man who had been possessed understood. Because this is the second reaction. And let's finish this morning with this picture of this man who understands this, who had been freed from demonic possession and who had found his freedom and peace in Jesus. Read with me from verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Let me pray as we finish there. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that while our world was disordered, while it was scrambled, your son, Jesus, came from heaven. He took on human flesh and he died on the cross. He descended to the dead. He defeated the devil. And he rose three days later, ascended to the heavens. And Father, we thank you that this means that there is peace. There can be peace in our hearts. There can be peace in this world. And Father, we long and pray for that day when your son Jesus would come back and he would restore all things and make all things right. 
And Father, for all of us here, wherever we're at in terms of our own spiritual journeys, I pray that you would be helping us just move that one step closer to you to be understanding who you are and what it is that you have done with us and that you would be helping us in our own hearts to be amazed at this as well. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.